Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. I'd like to welcome our newest member, Jacqueline. As a member, she will have the immense satisfaction that comes with knowing she's helping keep this podcast going. She's also getting free stuff that's only available to members, which I think is probably more likely why she's joined. And right now I'm finishing up a new members-only podcast on Celtic culture, which should be up pretty soon. Members, if you haven't already received an email instructing you how to get the podcasts, please email me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and I'll help get you set up. And now, on with the show. All right, we're entering the third century, and as we enter it, we cannot help but feeling that there has been a profound change that has come to the Roman Empire. We will see runaway inflation, military insurrection, nearly constant regicide, tyranny, and simultaneous war on both the east and west sides of the empire. Rome is deeply in trouble. But before we get into all that, we should probably cover a couple things to help you understand better what's going on, why it's happening, and why it matters. First, Sources for this period are getting increasingly more difficult to find. And it's not just written histories, but even pottery inscriptions during this period has declined. So unfortunately, we don't have a tremendous amount of information to go on. And to compound the problem for us, Britannia was quickly becoming a place to put men that the emperor wanted out of his way. There was no longer any honor in the position. In fact, the name Britannia was often used as essentially slang for the end of the world. It wasn't seen as an important national province, and so when we read references of Britannia during this period, it's usually mentioned in passing or in relation to something else that's occurring in a more important area of the empire. This might seem unusual, but actually the fact that we knew so much about the earlier period in Britannia is what should be seen as unusual. And we owe that information largely to the personal motives of Julius Caesar and Tacitus. I mean, Julius Caesar wanted to talk about how great he was, and Tacitus wanted to talk about how great his father-in-law was. Britannia just happened to be the setting. So the point is, the national focus of Rome is no longer upon Britannia. So now the island is returning to a state of isolation, which is insulating it from many of the problems of the empire. However, the downside of this was that because Britannia was no longer prestigious, nor was it as large, remember it had been split up, the British legions couldn't easily proclaim their own emperor like so many other of the provinces were doing. And as far as it being split up, that meant there wasn't just one governor. And those governors no longer commanded as many legions as they once did. So compared to many other territories, Britannia will see very few would-be usurpers rise from her legions because there just wasn't the opportunity to organize and propel forward like there might have been in other areas. And as an odd side note, Britannia Superior, while it was not as heavily militarized as as its northern neighbor with regards to forts and whatnot, still possessed two legions while there was only a single legion in the north. Were the tribes of Scotland no longer seen as a threat? That doesn't seem likely to me given that the tribes would soon become the Picts, and we know that that group caused a tremendous amount of problems for the neighbors to the south. Were there new concerns of southern rebellions? 
I don't think that was the problem, since there were garrisons in Wales that were being reduced around that time. And if there were issues with widespread revolts, it would be in Wales, since that was the traditional hotbed of rebellion in the South. Was it a prestige issue? I don't know. Maybe it had to do with coastal defenses. After all, we will start to see an increase in sea raiders as the story progresses, but why was the South more in need of men than the North? It just seems like an odd deployment decision. Anyway, Britannia was split up, treated as a backwater island, and largely neglected, and a constant source of irritation for the legions was that promotion was more difficult in Britannia. On the continent, legions had a more hands-on approach to the internal and external problems of the empire. What I'm saying here is that the legions were regularly killing or defending emperors. Consequently, supervisors were regularly getting killed in battle or were executed by the new emperor, and that made for many opportunities for quick advancement. That wasn't the case in Britannia. So Britannia simply was not the place where important men would travel to, nor where important men would spring from. And consequently, for a while, the story we will be telling will be of the events that impacted Britannia rather than events that originated in Britannia. The second thing you should know. The Romans loved to treat non-Romans, barbarians, as noble savages, at least in their literature and whatnot. They liked to imagine that they were struggling to save their native virtues against the vice and corruption of Roman society. You'll be glad to know that this tendency still lives on. You can see it in James Fenimore Cooper's Last of the Mohicans, for example. But the truth of the matter is that many of Rome's enemies were envious of the lifestyle that the Romans had fashioned for themselves. They wanted it, and were often willing to invade in order to get it. They weren't rejecting Roman luxury. They were rejecting the Roman gladius. This was also true of Britannia. Britannia was becoming thoroughly Romanized during this period, and while the citizens of Rome wouldn't have seen the Britons as Roman, the Romano-British likely saw themselves that way. They were not noble savages. They were converts. The third thing you should know. Pertinax and Severus changed everything. The failure of Pertinax was a source of concern for Severus, and he was determined to ensure that he and his sons would avoid it. So they courted and or bought the legions, which Pertinax had failed to do. And in doing this, they rang a bell that Rome could not unring. As a result, there was a major shift in power to the legions. The emperors were afraid of the legions, and now the legionaries knew it. They would use their power to extort ever greater promises of wealth and power from the emperors and would-be usurpers alike. And just in case you were wondering, these legionaries were not a revolutionary proletariat. They weren't fighting for the people. These men were extremely privileged. They lived lives substantially better than their civilian counterparts. In fact, many retired soldiers went on to found influential families. That's because by this time in history, they were even allowed to have wives. Which was another way that the emperors were trying to get the favor of the legions. Remember the HBO series Rome? And how in it, it was rather strange that Varinus had a wife. Well, in this period in time, it wouldn't be strange at all. 
So being a soldier meant that you had a ton of wealth and power, and comparatively few downsides in comparison with your predecessors. And many of the members of the legions were non-Roman, so it wasn't like they had any particular allegiance to specific Roman families or aristocracies or even Roman emperors. The point here is that the power was shifting to the army, which meant that it was shifting out of the hands of the Roman aristocracy and actually out of the hands of the Romans entirely. But don't think that means that the power was shifting to the masses. It wasn't. The fourth thing you should know. We're going to go through emperors fast and furious. Consequently, we don't have any neatly organized section of time. So far, I've been lucky and been able to break things up into the Flavian era, the Severan era, and things like that. But here, we're just going to have a gigantic mess, with a ton of emperors rising and falling. I'll mention some of them, as they pertain to events that impact Britannia, but I'll be leaving out a metric ton of them. And due to the lack of inscriptions and the mess of emperors and the lack of historians, much of the time it's difficult to pin things down to an exact date. Unfortunately, we're in the Dim Ages, and we're just marching right towards the Dark Ages, so things are going to get a little bit messy here. The fifth thing you should know. There's been a shift in Roman policy away from offense and towards defense. As you know, it started with Hadrian, but over time, it's become much more ingrained into Roman policy. And the trouble with that is that the defensive posture in combination with internal strife was telegraphing to the tribes that Rome had spent centuries terrorizing that Rome was no longer the threat it once was. See, the issue for Rome here is that it spent centuries bullying and killing its neighbors. If you're going to rule through fear and might, you're not going to make friends, and therefore you have to maintain the strength that you had because everybody now is your enemy and is just dying to bring you down. But unfortunately for Rome, it just couldn't help itself. It was weak. And from around this point on, many of the barbarian tribes would start to suspect and then reveal that Rome had turned into a paper tiger. Finally, while I'll be talking about some of the chaos of Rome during this period, I'm in no way giving you a comprehensive list of everything that was going wrong with the empire. It really was madness. I'm telling you this because if you don't realize the absolute anarchy of the empire, it's very hard to truly understand how amazing it is that there were relatively stable and prosperous areas in Britain. It would be like someone walking through an inferno without getting burned. It's just amazing. So much of what we're going to talk about here is actually to highlight the fact that there isn't much of a story in Britannia, and that itself is the story. There's all this crazy stuff that's happening, and Britannia does get touched by it a little bit, but by and large, Britannia is left alone, and that itself is amazing. So let's get on with the show. So when we last left off, Caracalla was headed back to Rome with his brother Gaeta who he was determined to kill. And he killed him. I know, shocking, right? Actually, he did it in front of their mother, which is really shocking and tremendously evil. But he didn't stop there. Caracalla killed damn near everyone, including a governor of Britannia, Gaius Julius Marcus, in 213. Seeing the river of blood that flowed from this paranoid emperor, the legions began to adopt epithets to declare their loyalty. 
a smart move. I would have done the same thing if I was in their shoes. Oh yeah, those guys are totally guilty, but not us. We're loyal. We've even attested to our loyalty in the name of our legion. By the way, you're looking really great today, Caracla. Or something like that. So almost everyone was ducking and weaving and trying to avoid getting killed until finally, like almost all tyrannical emperors, Caracalla was killed. And then his killer was killed. And then his successor was killed. Are you starting to detect a trend here? Between 217 and 251, there were 10 emperors, and only one didn't find a violent end. I mean, in 232, you have a gigantic Thracian peasant who ran the show for a while. Then Gordian and his son fought him, but the son ended up getting beheaded. And then the father hung himself with his own belt because he was upset about that. I mean, really, Rome was just a party if you were in the upper stratas of society. And actually, the rebellion continued, though emperors were dropping dead left and right. Basically, if the only good emperor is a dead emperor... There were a lot of good emperors. In fact, there was a 40-year period that saw at least 55 emperors proclaimed. Oh, and all through this, the Roman Empire and everything in it was going nuts. You had Gaul, Germania, Parthia, which went through some name changes, Africa. Everybody was spoiling for war. What a mess. But Britannia had the channel as well as a solid organization thanks to years of warfare against internal strife and also against the Scottish tribes. And consequently, things weren't as tough on the island as they were on the continent. It was largely peaceful. Peaceful and boring. We don't even have any records of serious fighting against the Scottish tribes. So the legions were just sitting around, growing fat and lazy, while the rest of the empire was racked with conflict and strife. That might have been good for the civilians. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was. But it was irritating as all get-out for the legions, who were missing out on the looting and the opportunities for promotion. So now it's 260, and the Emperor Gallienus is dealing with invasions and revolts throughout the empire, while his co-emperor, Valerian, is imprisoned by the Sassanids. And spoiler alert, he's never going to escape, and actually he's used as a footstool at one point, so... It's kind of tough to be Valerian. Anyway, during this period, a man known as Marcus Cassianius Latinius Postumus, see, inflation isn't just for money, it's also for names, had risen to power. He was probably from a common background from one of the tribes in Germania, and he was promoted to imperial legate of lower Germany by Valerian, the footstool guy. And he was defending the Rhine when the Alemanni and Franks went berserk. So he's out there fighting the Alamanni and the Franks. And serving with him is Emperor Gallienus's 18-year-old son, Saloninus. Postumus was a talented military leader and led his men to victory after victory. And all in all, this was a pretty educational trip for a young Caesar. And on one of those battles, Postumus and his men absolutely crushed an invading army. Well, actually... It already had invaded, and now it was on its way back home, loaded down with spoils and slaves from Italy. They didn't stand a chance against Postumus and his men. Standing in triumph on the field of battle, Postumus proceeded to order that the spoils be distributed amongst the legions, and a great cheer rose up from the men. 
Don't forget, the legions were not in it for emperor or country. They were in it for the lucre. But before they could get their treasure, Saloninus countermanded Postumus's orders, and demanded that the treasure be sent to his personal residence at Cologne. Rookie mistake, dude. You're surrounded by a bunch of well-armed killers who have grown accustomed to being well-paid, and also have grown accustomed to killing anyone who fails to pay them what they demand. And through years of infighting, they've gotten quite good at fighting Romans. I'll give you three guesses as to what happened when the legions found out that they weren't getting paid. Yep, they rebelled. They immediately proclaimed Postumus as emperor and pursued Saloninus to his residence, which they besieged. And after a short siege, they breached the walls because, I mean, it was just a residence, it wasn't a fortress, and killed him. And also killed the foolish Praetorian prefect who was advising Saloninus, which raises a question... Why have a Praetorium Prefect in the first place? If you've been listening to this, you've come to realize that if the Praetorians aren't killing you themselves, they're giving you advice that gets you killed. I would think that the first order of business of any emperor should be to get rid of the Praetorians. But that seems to be what our friend Pertinax was trying to do, or at least moving towards, and the Praetorians killed him for that. So maybe emperors were just stuck with them like a murderous civil service. Anyways, the emperor's son was now dead, and the supporters of the new emperor Postumus claimed it was actually the Gauls who killed Silaninus, definitely not Postumus and his men. But Postumus later built a triumphal arch, so I'm thinking that that probably put to rest any argument on who was actually involved. And what was happening in Britannia? Oh yeah, nothing. Yet. Now, Postumus was incredibly popular in Gaul and Germania. Consequently, he was immediately recognized by those territories as emperor. And one thing that's kind of interesting about Postumus is that he didn't claim to be rebelling against the empire. He claimed he was restoring it, which actually would become a common theme for British-born rebellions. The funny thing is that Emperor Postumus didn't actually want to be the emperor of Rome. It's an odd contradiction to claim that you're restoring the empire while at the same time not reaching out to grasp the actual seat of power that would allow you to restore it. But he was quite clear. He basically just wanted to be the emperor of Gaul. Of course, he also adopted all the trappings of a Roman emperor, the colors, the poses, and whatnot. While he was going to be the emperor of Gaul, he was going to look like a Roman emperor. That way, the people would feel comfortable with their traditions. And, I mean, this wasn't a nativist or nationalist movement. I mean, they weren't trying to move back to the old ways. It was definitely a Roman government in everything but name. And, of course, they didn't have to answer to Rome. So one year later, Britannia and Hispania also joined the Gallic Empire. And that's what it was called now, the Gallic Empire. And hey, our island is finally involved, and it's now part of this empire that's steadily growing. Now, you might be wondering why Britannia recognized Postumus as the emperor and joined the Gallic Empire. Frankly, I'm wondering why it took them so long. Britannia and Gaul had close ties with both trade and culture. Gaul was a bulwark of defense from the various barbarian hordes of Western Europe, and having an emperor in Gaul was vastly superior to having one in Italy. 
After all, he'd be able to pay attention to the needs of the province rather than treating it as a dumpster in which he'd toss troublesome politicians. All signs pointed towards joining the Gallic Empire, which they did. Alright, let's stop right there. That's part one of the Dim Ages. We're going to pick up with part two uh, with what Emperor Gallienus thinks about this Gallic Empire, but I think that this is a good place to stop. We've now had Britannia join a new empire, this fledgling empire. They're out there striking it on their own, and uh, we're going to see how that turns out for them. So yeah, I'll pick up with part two. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can head over to facebook.com slash British History, or you can email me directly at the British History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can head over to our website, which is the British History Podcast.com. And as always, thanks for listening.